Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Eunice. Thanks for joining us today. Let me take care of a little bit of business here. We would appreciate it before you leave today. You like our video. YouTube likes it when you like our video. Share with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your business associates, the entirety of your social network so that we can grow the channel finally. If you are not already a subscriber, uh, this would be the ideal time to subscribe. Click on that notifications bell, and that way every time we start a live stream or upload a video, you'll be immediately informed and as a result in the know. And also for those that of you that are listening to this as a podcast, please use your podcast provider in the same way. Like, share, and subscribe. All right. Today we're going to be getting into Chapter 11 of A Gypsy's Kiss, Treasure Hunt Adventure. And the title of the chapter is Passing the Torch. It's a theme of uh, guidance and support and in the form of uh, mentorship, somebody who is looking to an older relative to provide uh, advice and a leg up on the way to his next adventure. So um, that's pretty much it in the nutshell. Uh, well, uh, are you ready to get started? I am. A leg up is a motorcycle pun. Oh, Chapter 11, Passing the Torch. Uncle Carlos is not a multitasking kind of person. He focuses on one thing at a time, does it well and to completion, then moves on to the next task. Sitting at the kitchen table, I watch him moving back and forth, assembling a pot of coffee. He moves the sugar bowl from the counter to the table, then retrieves the creamer from the small refrigerator and places it on the table. He pulls two teaspoons from the drawer and two cups from the cabinet, along with two saucers, and puts them neatly in a setting for two on the table. Cups and saucers. He's not only an adventurous hellraiser, but... He's also a tidy housekeeper who is serious about hospitality. A few minutes later, the coffee starts percolating, and a few minutes after that, it's done enough for him to pour a pair of steaming cupfuls for us. We've said nothing in the interim. He joins me sitting at the table, adds a teaspoon of sugar to his cup, and stirs it with the elegant sound of metal swishing around porcelain. He carefully places his spoon upon the saucer and takes a sip of his coffee and sets down his cup. He looks directly at me and <clears throat> he looks directly at me and asks, "Well, Uncle Carlos is a no-nonsense kind of guy who appreciates direct answers, so I lay it out for him, short and sweet. I want to go to Mardi Gras." "Mardi Gras? Do you even know where it is or how to get there? Do you know how far it is from here?" He isn't tipping his hand, so I don't know if he is upset, worried, or just curious. Yes, it's in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's about a thousand miles from Santa Fe as the crow flies. Yeah, well, it's longer than that as the rat runs. It's at least three days of hard riding. How do you know? Because I've done it. Twice. 
both times to get to Mardi Gras. Uncle Carlos had been there? Yes. Now I can get the information I need. So? So what? So how was it? Was it worth the trip? Hell yes, it was worth the trip. It's not a kitty carnival. It's not even fiesta. It's a week's worth of drunkenness and debauchery, and you're nowhere... Excuse me. <coughs> and you're nowhere near either the drunkenness or debauchery age. I see a hint of a smile on his face when he says that. He continues, The first time I tangled with the New Orleans police, and they didn't mess around. I spent most of my first trip in a cell. But four years later, I went back and had a great time. He looks up wistfully. I wish I remembered more of it. I don't plan to get in any kind of trouble, especially with the police. I just want to see Mardi Gras to experience it. He pauses for a moment, studying my reaction before asking, Does your mother know? Nope. And the brothers don't either. I left without telling them. I don't want to be around when they find out. How did you get up here? I hitched a ride with a guy that knew my dad. Not the whole truth, but true enough. He picks up his spoon and stirs his coffee some more, considering my proposed adventure and comparing it to his own memories. You know that bike outside is almost as old as you, and she's been ridden pretty hard. She may not make it. It's only half as old as me, and you've ridden it hard, but you've taken good care of it too, although it looks to me like it could use a little TLC. She'll be fine after a couple of miles on the road, but she doesn't ride as nice as your Yamaha. Not wanting to change the subject, I don't tell him I wouldn't be here if I still had my Yamaha. Leaning in, I ask, so is that a yes? He stirs the coffee some more, staring at the swirling black brew as he weighs the options. Okay, but if your mother ever asks, I'll tell her you stole my bike. I'll have to help her skin you alive when she finally gets her hands on you. He points his finger in my face and says, and don't come home if the BSA doesn't come with you. Fair enough. Everything clicks into place. There's a little Mardi Gras celebration going on in my head. This is working out, one step at a time. I spend the next hour listening to him tell me all about the things that could go wrong, from running into biker-hating cops to how to deal with scammers, how to lock up the bike so it doesn't get stolen, how to hide my cash, how often I need to stop to check the oil, which he claims is every 200 miles. During that conversation, he rummages through a variety of storage locations in the house and makes a pile in the middle of the living room of everything he thinks I'll need for the trip. It includes cans of beans and tuna, a canteen, a surplus pup tent, a sleeping bag, two cans of oil to get me started, and an envelope with the motorcycle registration card inside. On top of the pile, he adds his black leather motorcycle jacket, his black cap with a white bill and gold trim on the sides, leather gloves, and a pair of aviator goggles. Putting his fists onto his hips, he stares down at the pile and after a minute turns to me and says, I think that's about it. Then he asks, can you think of anything else? I sort through the equipment, unsure about what lies ahead. Nope, that's everything I should need. He points toward the spare bedroom and says, go in there and get some sack time. You'll need it. 
You've got a long day ahead of you if you plan to be in New Orleans on Tuesday. I'll take care of putting your rig together. I know he's right. I turn before entering the bedroom, and with as much sincerity as I can muster, I say, Thank you, Uncle Carlos. I really appreciate what you're doing here, trusting me with the BSA and everything. Still focusing on the pile of equipment, and without looking up, he says, Like I said, don't come home if the bike doesn't come home with you. Yes, sir. In the small bedroom, I kick off my boots and climb onto the creaky twin bed. I'm lying on top of a quilt my grandmother made. I recall how much she loves Uncle Carlos, despite his idiosyncrasies. I hear him going out the front door of the mobile home as I drift off to sleep. So that's basically just a conversation, one conversation out of millions that we have in our lifetime. But it seems important enough that we created a chapter for it. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you feel is the most important thing about this conversation? It's the, I don't know if it's the first time in my life, but it is one of the early times in my life where an adult showed respect for my uh, thoughts, emotions, etc. And I think that's what's important. He, he, he gave it credence and he believed in enough in me to uh, allow me to proceed, even though I'm sure somewhere in the back of his mind, he thought to himself, I mean, think of it today. Would uh, you, when you're either of your children at that age said to you, I want to take off and go to Mardi Gras and um, I'm not going to go after it's described as, uh, you know, drunkenness and debauchery. Uh, because I don't think any of us, I certainly would, I don't think I would have let any of my children do the same thing, no matter what I thought of it or what my experience had been in it. I would not want them, uh, I would not allow them to put themselves at that kind of risk at the age of 15, which would further imply that I didn't show their thoughts, feelings, emotions uh, with respect. I remember a very distinct time where I think it was the summer after her junior year at, at the University of Tennessee. Erica said she wasn't coming home from the summer for the summer. And I said, why not? And she said, I'm going to study anthropology in Cyprus for the summer. And that sent like a whole electric shock through me. Um, because I imagined all the possible things that could go wrong as a result of that, and that she was a, still a, a teenager, uh, you know, a late model teenager, but still a teenager. And that was my Erica of the great anxieties. And my Erica, who I didn't always trust, was making the best decisions for herself uh, and who I always gave the best advice to. And I was stuck in a place uh, where. Um, the only thing I could ask is, how much is this going to cost me? And she responded, uh, it's paid for. The school is paying for it. And uh, I didn't, uh, because that was going to be my last argument. I don't think we can afford this right now. You still have another year. It's a big year. The cost of graduation, blah, 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 blah. I I didn't even have that to go with. 
So I said, who else is going with you? And she said, three other students from my, uh, the logistics, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's the logistics in the College of Engineering. And I said, oh, uh, do I know them? And she said, probably not. And she said, two boys' names and one girl's name. And I didn't recognize any of them. So none of them were from Chantilly or anyone that I had experience. So another wave rushed through me like, oh, my God, they're going to be taken advantage of. And it's Cyprus. And Cyprus is notorious for its uh, street. Rock. I had all these things going through my mind as a result of my own experiences. And uh, by this time, she was, like I said, late teens. She had been in college for um, uh, three years and done well away from home. So I had no reason not to trust her other than being uh, a protective father mm -hmm. uh, and experiencing whatever emotions I was experiencing. And um, I, uh, I said, well, well, you know, when are you leaving? What do we have to do between now and then, et cetera? And I hung up the phone and I had like the mixed feelings of, oh, my little girl is growing up and she's traveling with the world, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was the other side of that that was, oh, my baby is going away to Cyprus, you know, et cetera. So um, I, uh, I, that was as close as I ever got to having to say to one of my children, uh, I'm not comfortable with that. And I, and I didn't say that. Uh, Sean was invited to governor school uh, the, the, the summer of her, before her senior year, and that was just down at the University of Virginia. And I drove her down and made sure they checked out the room to make sure it didn't have places that people could peeping Tom in, you know. So uh, what, what I was excited about, uh, aside from the fact of, you know, I don't remember the Christian brothers exactly describing it as drunkenness and debauchery, but I think it was pretty close. Uh, was imagining like, I wonder what this is going to be like for a 15-year-old, the drunkenness and debauchery you're going to be for a 15-year-old. And certainly it's there. You can't miss it. It it fills the street. The drunkenness and debauchery fills the streets during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So you can't, you can't miss it. You can't ignore it. Uh, but that was okay with him. You know, uh, not only was he going to trust me with his beloved motorcycle, but he was going to trust that uh, as a 15-year-old, I could... Uh, take this trip and come back unscathed. I don't know if it was necessarily unscathed, but at least alive, you know. <laughs> I can't imagine what my family would and the Christian brothers would have gone through if something had happened and I didn't come back uh, because the motorcycle without a helmet at the time was not exactly the safest vehicle on the road. So um, it was, it would, I think to me, it was his recognition that this is something I wanted to do and potentially could do. And there was only one way we were, we were both going to find out. Mm -hmm. So basically he's treating you like an adult. And I think that's why we included the whole coffee thing was like coffee is a drink for adults, mm -hmm. even though it's not, you know, it's got caffeine in and it keeps, you know, it's, just something that doesn't taste uh, sweet and yummy for you know children so mm -hmm. to bring you coffee give you coffee and uh, expect you to drink it like an adult uh, mm -hmm. then 
you had that signal that he was going to treat you like an adult at this point. And um, I suppose that's easier for somebody who's slightly removed. He's not your parent. He's mm -hmm. an uncle. He's an unmarried uncle without kids. So he doesn't have that same feeling of, oh my God, oh my baby's going to run off and get hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, even though your daughter was obviously at least 20, if not 21, when she mm -hmm. went to Cyprus. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think back to what you were doing when you were 20 and 21 <laughs> in Vietnam, uh, getting married and having babies and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, yeah, it was the same kind of thing with my mom. She got married when she was 18. And, um, you know, if I had gotten married when I was 18, you know, she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have wanted me to do that. Mm -hmm. It would have been a, a big deal. Um, and, uh, just the whole, we don't want our kids to go through the things that we went through that happened to turn out either as a bad experience or, we feel like they're too young for that experience. Uh, they need to have more years of, of life under their belt before they can handle, uh, for instance, going to Mardi Gras or going on a trip to Cyprus or uh, just when my daughter went to New York by herself, it was like, oh my God, you know, uh, how is she going to deal with this? How is she going to manage? And mm -hmm. But she was very... I'm going to do this and I'm already signed up for all these different things and I'm going to do it. And I was like, Oh, well, okay. Um, I guess it's easier now because at least they have a cell phone. They can always call right. and say, this is what's going on. What do I do? Um, <laughs> but it's still, there's still that letting go. Um, whereas with an uncle Carlos, it's just not as much of a letting go as it is guiding you on your way. The, the other uh, benefit, so when you mentioned that uh, you would have had trouble getting married at 18 because your mother would have uh, prevented you from doing that, um, I think that is probably the thing. There, there are two things that run into your mind, run into me, in my experience, there are two things that run into your head when one of your children at a certain age lets you know they don't, it's, it's rare that they ask. They just let you know, oh, hey, I'm, I'm going to Cyprus. Um, one reaction is, is what you said, oh, my God, uh, when I was 18, I wouldn't have done anything like that. And I certainly wouldn't travel to a place like Cyprus. That never, the, the whole age thing, like what I did when they were 18 or 19, um, never entered my mind. What entered my mind was my knowledge of world travel and experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it, you're building yourself uh, a, a straw house there because you, you can't make the argument of, well, I know Cyprus is this, for example. The, uh, then the following question is, how do you know that? And uh, your answer is, well, I've been there. And I don't, you know, you, you get to that straw house where you can't, actually suggest to them that they shouldn't do this uh, based upon your own personal experiences. Um, it, it, there's, there's no good way to win a, an argue, a debate, I won't call it an argument, over one of your children telling you that you want to, they want to do something. Uh, because eventually 
you have to explain to them things like, well, I just took every job that nobody else wanted, or I made a choice to go there because I thought I'd learn things. You know, you've, you've spent a lifetime telling them how you acquired the experiences or how you collected the experiences that enabled you to understand the world a little bit better. So it puts you in this terrible position of, uh, of making the argument that this is not a good idea for them when it was a perfectly reasonable idea for you. And I think the difference between us growing up, and I say us, even though I think yours, your generation was a little bit more, even more protected. We, we were the, we were the last generation and I'm, I'll say this, but uh, it's, I don't mean it in the truest sense of the world. We were the words. Uh, we were the last generation who nobody gave a damn about in the sense that when you said, uh, I'm going camping up in the mountains above Santa Fe for two days, I'll see you guys Sunday night. Nobody said, oh, maybe that's not a very good idea. You know, there's, I don't know if there are murderers up there, but, but nobody said, uh, nobody even asked, well, are you prepared for that? How are you going? Do you have cans of beans and tuna? Or it was just like you did it. And then I think the generations that followed us, uh, that particular generation, and I'm not saying us because the generations even before us were even more adventurous. You know, they just, they they just did things. They survived so many things from, you know, uh, World War One to uh, the Depression and then World War Two. Uh, they had like, oh yeah, yeah, we can do this. You know, that's we can, we can have that experience. And I think they accepted that in the context of our generation. Like, oh yeah, well, I went off to war. I guess he can go off to war. Um, and then I think our generation was the first to get more protective and more aware of like what the potential is like you know we we hear today of of kidnappings you know i i get an amber alert every three or four days and i think to myself is this a new phenomenon or are children have children always disappeared like this but there was no amber alert to let us know uh, so uh, I, I think it's different with uh, shootings, with mass killings, because there are 100 million more guns in the United States than there are people. So I think that has had a, had, has had a factor, and anybody can buy a gun. Uh, but I, I think of all these crimes that are committed today make, that we are aware of because of the 24-hour-a-day news cycle, and I wonder to myself, did that happen Back then, did that happen in my generation? Did we lose children to just the disappearance or crazy parents or, you know, murder-suicide kind of things? I don't remember that. I don't. I, it, and and it might may be that I just wasn't paying attention, or it could be that the news just wasn't broad enough to cover that, and your news consisted of uh, of uh, watching one of the local channels at night for a little while if you had the patience to do that. I don't even remember having the patience to do that. So. Uh, I, I think that generation, that particular, and, and I am a boomer, uh, that period, that's my generation. But I remember that, like, w we had a little bit more freedom than we would have allowed our own children or our own grandchildren. I just couldn't imagine one of my grandchildren, not that I have the right to 
manage them or control them, but I, I, I don't know what my daughters would do if one of their daughters or, or sons said to them, I'm going to go to Cyprus for the summer, you know. And the other thing, too, is that period uh, that she was headed in that direction, the early 2000s, was post 9-11. And so there was a lot of activity related to terrorism. And I remember Cyprus Airport, the airport on Cyprus, was one of the places that was attacked by by um, Arab terrorists. And, and so I had all this opportunity to kind of find ways to reject the idea, uh, but it was too late. She had made the decision. She had gotten the offer. You know, she was one of the four students that was selected. And uh, how could I argue? But I, I assume that the University of Tennessee... Uh, knew what they were doing, you know. So I have a video of her um, standing at the edge of a 200-foot cliff in Cyprus, standing there in her bikini, being cheered on by a boat, a passenger boat that was going by cheering her on to jump i have that video and did she she did <laughs> and managed to survive it it probably wasn't 200 feet i think i'm exaggerating there but but yeah the boat's going by and all the passengers are on one side of the boat and they're all saying various jump in various languages yes do it do it and then they cheer her when she does i have that video so how can I debate that with anyone? All right. Well, um, a couple of times in this chapter, Uncle Carlos says, don't come home without my <laughs> motorcycle. Um, why did you have that in there twice? And what's the importance of that? So the importance of it is uh, what we used to call motorcycle love, right? Mm -hmm. Back in the olden days, the cowboys loved their horses. We didn't have horse, although I did ride a horse uh, at my grandmother's ranch, but motorcycles were our horses. We loved them. We took care of them. We managed them. They gave us transportation. They gave us sex appeal. They gave us coolness. Um, they gave us all of those things. And your motorcycle was pretty much your best friend. And so he felt about his motorcycle uh, like I felt about all of my motorcycles right up until the last one that I bought. And um, and I think what he was expressing was, this is my baby, right? You're going to have to take care of it in the same way that you would have to take care of my daughter if I was going to trust you with my daughter. That's that's what that expression was. And he did say it, he, he probably said it more than twice, just to kind of reinforce that if something happens to this motorcycle while you're on your escapade here, don't come home. Now, I, I would eventually had to come home and probably buy him a new motorcycle to make up for the fact that I lost his BSA, but it would never make up for the fact that that was his BSA. That was the fact, that was the BSA that he probably took uh, to Mardi Gras. That was the BSA I know for certain. He went to and from Alaska with those jars full of gold nuggets. Um, every time he he left he went someplace for him a sunday ride you couldn't so a sunday ride 
for me was cruising Cerrillos Road, hanging out at the NW, the Tasty Freeze, running back, finding other cyclists, going downtown, cruising the plaza, whistling at the girls. That was a ride. When Uncle Carlos got on his bike, he went someplace. Someplace in New Mexico, someplace in Arizona, someplace in Colorado, someplace in Texas. He went someplace. And that was his favorite and uh, well-recognized form of transportation. I remember him riding that motorcycle in every season of the year, winter included. And that was his thing. I don't, I don't actually ever remember him owning a car. Maybe that's just my memory of things, but even he didn't have a car at my grandmother's house. I know that. Mm. So that was his baby. And it would have been the, the same as uh, when, when, uh, when guys used to uh, come and pick up any of my daughters for homecoming dances or proms, uh, I would say to them, say to them, bring her home in exactly the same condition she's living, leaving. That's what I would say. I didn't show my gun, gun collection, <laughs> but bring her home. And that's what he was doing. Bring her home in exactly the same condition that she's leaving uh, or don't come home, you know? That's that was his thing. That was kind of a threat then. It was very much. Uh, it was. I don't know what he would have done. I'm. I'm sure he wouldn't have pulled out the forty four Ruger again. But, uh, but it would have been. It would have, if not the end of my relationship with my uncle Carlos, at least a big and memorable strain. It would have haunted me for years until I probably replaced the motorcycle with something. And and he would have never had, I know him well enough to know, he was the only uncle I had that rode motorcycles. All the others were very practical when it came to transportation. They'd all buy cars, you know. Uh, but it would have been funny had I lost it because I would have had to replace it. And a new Yamaha, no matter how new and how big, uh, would have not sufficed. It would have to be another BSA 500 Gold Star. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to find. Now, there you can still find them. I found one when we were writing the book. I needed some pictures uh, of that particular model, and I found one, uh, some pictures that led me to a sale on eBay uh, to a restored BSA 500 Gold Star, and it was selling for $20,000. I actually considered buying it, but that, that would have just been crazy. So, yes. yeah, it would have been, it would have been a uh, impediment to the development of our, our relationship, and I certainly didn't want to make any of my uncles happy because they were all so good to me, you know, unhappy because they were so uh, good to me. Yes. Uh, so... He sends you off on your way, um, or he's getting ready to, but he's not letting you go just jump on the bike and take off. He is preparing you. He's giving you things to take with you, food and water and a tent and um, things that you're going to need along the way. Mm -hmm. And then he's giving you advice, you know, mm -hmm. watch out for scammers and cops and this and that. And uh, he can't just send you along without preparing you um so he's acting basically i guess as a mentor a mentor if you mm -hmm. if you have a mentor they're going to guide you 
in the in the direction that uh, they feel is in your best interest, and they're going to prepare you for what you're going to need along the way uh, to get to your goal. But um, you you never waver from your goal. You 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 are now more prepared, even though you came with nothing. Uh, <laughs> you just hitchhike there. You show up. You try to take his bike, and, and now he's like, "Oh no." here's how you do it and gives uh-huh. you all the things and tells you what to do. Um, so what does that do for Miguel? What does that do for you uh, as a young man um, who wants to take off on a journey and comes with nothing and then is given all of this advice and uh, prepar- preparatory uh, items that, that you didn't even think about that you were going to need? So if uh, we go back to uh, the hero's journey, um, there there can be throughout your journey from beginning to middle to end, a number of mentors depending on the situation you find yourself. And almost every well-written hero's journey will have multiple mentors. And the reason they are mentors at different places in the story is because they can provide advice and recommendations and suggestions and equipment that for uh, that are unique to that part of the story and i think that's the mentor mentor role he was playing he had the experience he had the knowledge he had the equipment he had the advice to give he was for what I was about to do. And so playing the mentor role enabled him to ensure that I was going to be able to make my journey as safely as he could make it. There are, as we'll continue through the book, there are a number of other people that I meet along the way that could fill the role of mentor. by providing advice, by providing money, in the case of the, uh, in the case of the uh, bike gang, uh, by providing food, in the case of the couple at uh, uh, the uh, national park. So uh, the mentor plays an important role, and that's why it is one of the archetypes, uh, archetypes in the hero's journey. And I strongly, I strongly recommend. Um, that you find a good book. It doesn't have to be Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, but uh, there's another good one. And by the time we get back to uh, this next week, I'll bring that book in with me. I I think his name is Christopher Nolan. And he actually wrote a book on the structure of movies. He, He used to, he was a reader. And what would happen is producers uh, working for a particular corporation would bring in a script and his job to the corporation, excuse me, his job in the corporation was to read the script and make an evaluation of whether or not it was worth producing. After doing that hundreds, if not thousands of times, he not only recognized that the best movies incorporated the hero's journey, he started describing the components that made the best movies resulting from the hero's journey. And he wrote this book on it. And he, and he tells us about the journey, the, the segments in the movie, you know, why a movie is one hour and 30 minutes, the average 
movie is one hour and 30 minutes long. And then he, and then he breaks it down by the various segments, parts uh, one, two, three, and four uh, in the movie and uh, the sub-segments in there and the people that are required to be part of the story. And the reason I think it's important to read something like that is because the, the hero's journey is timeless. Uh, and it doesn't make any difference whether you were sitting around a fire 10,000 years ago, storytelling with the people at that fire, or going to the movie today. Go watch a movie today and watch how the story develops with a beginning, a middle, and an end, where the treasure is brought home, or the new knowledge is brought home, or the satisfaction of having completed the journey is brought home. They, they still do that. And the best movies, the most popular ones, are all structured like that. These archetypes, mentors being one of them, uh, are important to the storyline because no hero's journey takes place in a vacuum. It takes place in a world, and that world will have objects in it, and it will have spirits in it, and it will have archetypes in it like the mentor. Uh, it will have um, uh, archetypes in it like your antagonist. It will have archetypes types in it by the wom woman, and there are two kinds of women, the women that can be helpful and the women that can be not helpful. So it's important to understand all of those archetypes uh, in order to create a story that has lasting value in terms of the story. Because every story, we should be able to learn from every story we hear or read or watch, not only about the story, but more importantly, about ourselves. Every hero's journey it has a potential for you as an individual to learn from. You may have your own Uncle Carlos in your life. It may not even be an uncle. It may not be a male. It may not be a Carlos. But you can go back to those early years that created the beginnings of your life's direction. And in there will be a mentor, some, someone who helped you get to whatever the next step in that particular adventure was, and that created you, that influenced you enough to have made you different and better uh, as that person. Now, they don't always happen to be better. There can be bad people who are mentors that turn you into a bad person. I was fortunate not to have any of those, or at least those that I didn't recognize. So his... His mentorship took place, and I think maybe that's another characteristic of mentors. They always seem to be in the right place at the right time. The place that you need to have that kind of mentor in, mentor in your life at that point in time. When the and, student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. That's a very good way to describe it. But uh, I'll bring that book for our next uh, program because I'd like you to see it because uh, I've read it more than once. Uh, and it was a much easier read than uh, Joseph uh, Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Campbell is uh, Joseph Campbell, who was an anthropologist, archaeologist, and philosopher, wrote the book on the hero's journey. And uh, it is heavy reading. It's that thick, hardbound, heavy reading. Sometimes your colleges will require you to read it. But there are better and easier uh, 
uh, written books, mostly from the uh, movie, uh, from the film industry by people who have recognized the value of creating films, of producing films that follow uh, the hero's journey metaphor. Uh, Christopher Nolan is one, uh, Sid Fields, I think is his last name, is another. And they actually teach courses uh, on how to write scripts using the hero's journey model. So I'll, I'll so bring a couple with me prefer, next time. Which do you prefer to be, the hero or the mentor? Oh my gosh. I don't think um, that's a really good question. And it's <laughs> you don't one... think it's a really good question? Pardon me? You don't think it's a really good question? No, no, no. I, I, that, I'm, that's what I said. I think that's a really good question. Oh. Uh, and the reason is that after you've experienced your hero's journey, you should have enough, you should have gained enough new experience, both positive and negative in order to act as a mentor towards whoever is following their hero's journey and you happen to pop up at the right time and the right, right place to uh, behave as their mentor. So I think there is value not only to being a hero, but learning from that experience enough to be becoming a mentor. At my age, I am far less a hero than I am a mentor. And I really enjoy playing that role when, when given the opportunity. So uh, uh, over, the, over the life of your entire lifelong hero's journey, uh, as you have those ups and downs, those sub-journeys, those sub-sub-journeys, uh, you're going to collect uh, experiences and knowledge and emotions uh, that you will be able to store inside of you so that when you know, the uh, your whatever adventure it is comes along, you can provide them your opinions on the matter and maybe even aid them in their journey. So I, I think they're, uh, wow, this is going to sound like a, this is going to sound like a terrible answer. I think they're both important. I think uh, you become a better mentor when you have the experience of the hero's journey multiple times. It increases your knowledge and increases your confidence and hopefully increases your willingness to share that with uh, other people who are about to or are in the process of experiencing their own hero's journey. I feel like uh, my relationship with you is very much a mentor's relationship on a, uh, on a, uh, to a person who is on a sub-hero's journey in her life over the past 10 years, including right up until now. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> what makes you feel like you are a mentor in that situation? Do you have a story of being a mentor? Um, I... Yeah, the answer is yes, but I don't know that I necessarily have a story that that I can come up with that easily where I've had a positive impact on somebody's hero's journey. And I think part of the reason is that I started, there was a point in time, probably in my late 30s, where I had the confidence necessary to act as a mentor 
uh, to someone who was experienced, and it comes with your children, right? Once you start having children, you're basically a mentor. Maybe you're helping them along in other ways, but you've got to act as a mentor, but you don't put it in the context of a hero's journey. You're just trying to be a good dad. Uh, but the, the, the place that I gained the most confidence as a mentor was when I started coaching girls soccer. Because they, those little girls, those five-year-old little girls are about to begin a journey of confidence building through sport and athleticism that you're going to have either a positive or negative influence on. And I wanted to make sure what I did was a positive influence. And so I had to go to school. I went to North Carolina State, summer, summer sessions, three-week-long sessions at North Carolina State University meant for uh, coaches who were coaching uh, club soccer, you know? And, um, and so I, not only did I learn how to do it, I, I learned how to be it. I learned how to be a really, really good coach that would enable me not to damage these young, these children um, while still having the, you know, the ability to get them from through a season. A season was eight games. There was a beginning and a middle and the end of the season. The end of the season, then there was three or four tournaments that you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to participate in. And so, and then, it, and then you'd had the the team party, right? And uh, and during that period of time, that that year, that one season, we had two seasons a year, fall and spring. And during those two seasons every year, you had the opportunity to influence them in a positive way and a negative way. And the way that you knew that was whether or not you lost players at the end of the season or whether or not you had other parents coming to you and saying, is there any chance I could put my player on your team? And that that was the point that I felt like, okay, okay I can I can mentor this. If I can mentor, if not, not, it's not, if I can mentor five-year-old girls or six or seven or eight all the way up until they're in high school, if I can mentor them playing soccer, I can mentor anyone at anything. That's not exactly the way it works. Uh, you have to have the skills, the experience, the knowledge, the emotions necessary to be a mentor to someone at a particular play, like you said earlier, at a particular place, particular time, and a particular topic. And uh, there were times in my life where I distinctly remember stepping back uh, by saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that based on the fact that I didn't have the necessary uh, 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 traits, characteristics that would enable me to do a good job. I, and I've learned that lesson, right? The lesson is don't try to be a mentor in an area that you don't have expertise in. You could do damage if you do, you know. So I try to avoid those as much as I can. I'm, I'm kind of a big mouth, so I always want to, and and I'm at age 74, I've had a lot of experiences, so I always want to throw something out. But I think one of the things that I've learned as I've aged is you don't always know the right thing to say or the right thing to do. You just have to listen and, you know, follow the instructions. You can't be a mentor, a mentor 24 hours a day. All right. And uh, I think that pretty much uh, covers today's chapter. It's only a short chapter. It's just one conversation. Um, but uh, I think we handle it really well. And um, 
of course, if you haven't yet watched or listened to all of the other chapters, make sure you go back and listen to chapters one through 10 so that uh, you're completely caught up before Miguel really gets going on this adventure soon. Uh, <laughs> I think it starts in the morning um, when he wakes up from this, uh, when he's just gone to bed, um, wakes up in the morning and ready to go. Get Get, get moving on his uh, adventure on that motorcycle. Yeah, um, I think what we've done in uh, this last chapter is we've completed part one. Yeah. Of the hero's, hero's journey. Yeah. Up to the mentor, finding the mentor. Yeah. To send him on his yeah. way. Right. And it's not yeah. the other thing that one has to consider is the mentor isn't traveling with you. It is rare that they go with you. You find them along the way. Mm. Uh, and uh, Carlos will not be the last mentor that I experience on this journey. There will be more than one. And there will be antagonists, and there will be women and all kinds of things. That's right. So come back next week for Chapter 12, and we'll discover all those many things together. Um, uh, and thanks for joining us today. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters. <laughs>